You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now on to our guest. Laura Kelly Finucci is a writer and speaker who has spent over a decade working on theology of vocation. She earned her Master of Divinity from St. John's School of Theology and her BA from the University of Notre Dame. Laura is an award-winning columnist for Catholic News Service, and her nationally syndicated Faith at Home column runs monthly in Catholic newspapers across the United States. Her writing has been featured on NPR's Morning Edition, On Being, and In the Christian Century, as well as popular outlets including People Magazine and The Kelly Clarkson Show. Laura has authored seven books, most recently, Grieving Together, A Couple's Journey Through Miscarriage. She and her husband live in Minnesota with their children. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Laura and I discuss how she discovered her vocation to write about the intersection of parenting and faith. We talk about how an acorn, pilgrimage, or light bulb can serve as metaphors for calling. We consider toxic positivity and how it's countercultural to refuse to take part. Laura also shares her story of grief and loss as a parent and how it strengthened her and her husband's connection to the holy mystery. Enjoy! Laura Kelly Finucci, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I'm thankful that you could make time for this. I know you're a busy woman, lots of writing, lots of ministering that you're doing. You have five children uh, living and three who are deceased. Um, so anyway, you have a large family, I know, and you also have a working husband. So <laughs> I imagine you had to arrange childcare to be in this conversation today, and I honor and respect that. Um, you know, you're it's interesting to be, and I'm excited to be in conversation with you because like we were talking about just before we began the recording, our work, I think, sort of like overlaps. We're both interested in the messiness of, of living a life of faith. And we both experience and explore that in different ways. Yeah. And I know that you as a parent, as a mother, are especially writing about the messiness of parenting and speaking about it as well. And, and maybe just the messiness of family life in general. So I'm wondering, how did you discover that this is your vocation? Ooh, that's a great question. That's one of my favorite questions in the world to ask people. I started writing when I was a new mom. I never thought I was going to be a writer. This was not my life's dream. Some writers want to do this forever, but 
I had gone to graduate school for theology and was just immersed in this world of theology for three years full time. I did it. And, and at the end of that time, I was pregnant. And so I had this huge transition in my life where I left this little bubble of graduate school <laughs> and all these friends that love to stay up late talking theology. And I became a mother and had this newborn and just felt like my whole world got turned upside down. And I really struggled to find where God was in that. It was mm. just a real shock to my system. And so I started, this was back in the blogging heyday. So I thought, well, maybe I could start one of those blog things. And uh, I had liked journaling in the past just as a spiritual practice. So I thought, well, maybe this is like just an online journal and it'll just kind of help me to get into a groove with writing when I'm up at all hours. <laughs> so I just started blogging about what I saw in new motherhood, like where were the intersections of spirituality and parenting? I felt like that was the one place that felt really life-giving when parenting was so hard. Um, and at the beginning, I mean, I didn't even tell my husband I started this thing at the beginning. I just kind of did it for myself. I didn't share it for, for, with anybody. And then over a couple months, I started sharing it with, I shared it with my spouse. And then I shared it with a few friends and felt like, well, this is kind of cool to write for a little community. And so it became a spiritual practice for me in those new years of motherhood um, to just reflect on where I was finding God or struggling to find God mm. in the challenges and the joys of parenting. And, and things kind of grew out of that. And I think I came to find that this was my life's calling when it felt like, okay, the way that I was able to share from my experience, the words I was able to offer were received by the reader as a gift. And they, and people would say things like, you know, you could put into words what I felt, but I, I would never, I could never put that into, into words. And I'm grateful that you did that helped me to understand something about my life. And I just thought that's incredible that I, that's mm. the power of writing, I guess. And so to see how connecting with other people in community has come out of my writing to see how my sharing my own story, even with vulnerability, could invite the reader to understand their own life in a new way. That felt like such a, a sweet spot of calling where, where the gifts and the opportunities I was given could meet the needs that were out there in the world. So it was a very kind of twisting and turning road that led me here. That's definitely the kind of vocation story I have. But I think that deep resonance of knowing that I find joy and peace and gratitude in it. And I, I hear that others can find worth and, and fruit for their own life from my words too. So that's how I came to find this calling. Wow. Yeah. I love the way that it sort of, it sounds like it surprised you. It was just sort of like this gradual thing that unfolded and you didn't really know what you were getting into and saying yes when you started just trying something. Yeah. And then it well, took on a life, on not a life of its own, but like a, a life in you, a life with you. Yes. That's a great way to put it. It's funny because in alongside this writing, which up until now I had been doing sort of on the margins of my life, I would say, like outside of my professional work and outside of parenting, I would kind of squeeze this writing in wherever I could. Mm. But my work in theology was all around vocation and calling. I worked on an ecumenical project, a research project in practical theology that looked at what vocation and meaning 
can actually, or vocation and calling can actually mean for people today. Those are pretty loaded words. And so we tried to look at what was vocation like across the lifespan, not just in adulthood, not just about productivity and work, but like about God's whole call throughout our life. And we looked at vocation in the professions and like how people, not just in, you know, religious life or in the church, how they understand the meaning of their, whatever their work is that they do in the world, whether it's mm. paid or unpaid, you know, how do they, how do they make meaning out of the activity of their days? And as part of that work in theology, one of my colleagues up at St. John's where this project was housed at the Collegeville Institute, Kathleen Cahalan came up with this really beautiful framework around calling that there tends to be three different kinds of of stories that people will tell about their calling or three different metaphors we could use. And one of them is an acorn. Hmm. And some people will have these acorn stories. You know, an acorn can only be one thing. It's going to grow into an oak tree, right? And so some people will say, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Like from the time I was six years old, I just knew it and I did it. That's my life's work. And then some people, more people, many more people will talk about their calling like as a pilgrimage you know, and the whole discovery and the gift of pilgrimage is what you learn along the way. It's actually not that destination, right? It's all those very serendipitous twists and turns so that they find their vocation or their calling and all those twists and turns. And then the third way is kind of the light bulb moment or or we might say like falling in love that some people right in the middle of what they're doing will suddenly have this aha moment like, I love this. I love this work. This is what I'm supposed to do in the world. Like some people will almost describe it. Like they can feel the Holy spirit in them, you know, almost like that excitement, that fire, that energy, like this is it, you know? And I feel like my story, I resonate with those last two. Like it's been part pilgrimage, you know, that along the way in all, all the twists and turns and the changes of my life, I've come to keep learning more about this calling. And then I've had those moments of this deep falling in love. Like, I love this work. I would, I would write till the day I died, even if nobody paid me another cent. I just love this so much. And yeah, never meant to be a writer, didn't study it in undergrad or anything like Mm -hmm. that. I've, I've learned along the way, but yeah. So I love hearing people's stories of calling. I think Mm -hmm. they're so rich and varied, you know, all those ways that God works. Yeah, exactly. And I just love those three examples or three frameworks, the the acorn, the pilgrimage and Uh, like the light bulb bulb or the aha. Right. Thank you. And I resonate with all of them because my goodness, (laughs) I can see how that's all happened in my life for sure. The acorn thing, it was probably Catholic sisterhood, but I didn't like being an acorn, <laughs> you know, or oh, I didn't, yeah. didn't want to grow into an oak. Like probably for like my teenage years, early twenties, I was trying to be a pine tree or something, <laughs> but I, I have that yeah. true to myself. Right. And then once, once I was like, no, this is the most true way to be Julia. Absolutely. And then all the ministries like that's those, those discoveries have happened. Yeah. I've definitely had light bulb moments and, and like, that's, that's probably like in space where I am now, I'm in, I've just recently founded this, this community here in Chicago called the fireplace, which is a house of hospitality and an intentional community for uh, creative people and change makers to come and like rekindle their fires and, you know, to renew their spirits so they don't burn out. 
it's a homey spirituality center or something, you know, like instead of it being an institution or like just in our home, we're going to be hosting programs. And, and anyway, this feels like this arrival to me, like this has been the thing I've been thinking about for years and it's happening. And so that feels like once this dream and and then like the thing started unfolding, it just started to crystallize. I was like, aha, this is it. This is everything I've been working for. This makes so much sense. You know, those are really beautiful um, metaphors. I love it. Yeah. And I just think about all the other things that I've experienced, like, you know, jail ministry or um, ministering to, to people on the margins here and there and justice ministry here and there. Like, that's all just been like, huh, what a pilgrimage. So many experiences, so many learnings and discoveries, but yet like I belong here. I can tell this is what God wants me to be doing. Wow. Yeah. I love that. And when you were talking, I was remembering the Quakers, have this phrase for talking about calling as way opening. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like what you're doing with the fireplace. Like, I think we do sometimes get to those points in life. It does feel like arrival. It feels like everything has sort of brought me to this place. And and sometimes it's hard to talk about because I'm not an everything happens for a reason person. Right? Like that me is either. deeply problematic. And yet I also want to say, there are ways in which all these experiences, even this deep suffering that I've been through, I am a big believer that nothing is lost. Like, I think we hold all of these experiences and they shape us. And sometimes like we're bringing all of that to this way opening. And and so it's not just that a, like, it's like a fairy godmother and God just poof and here's the wand and it all magically happens. But but I think there are times in life where we feel that opening like this. I have brought the fullness of myself here and I feel like I've been prepared for this moment. And this is it happening right in front of me. And mm-hmm. that's amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. those times are, that's really powerful and sacred, I think. So what suggestions do you have for, for people who are trying to discern their vocation? Yeah. One of the things that's been most helpful for me is thinking about and and this comes out of my, you know, background. Like I am a Catholic Christian. I've been Catholic my whole life. So I draw on that tradition the most. And and in scripture, we read about the fruits of the spirit, like where the spirit is, you know, there will be love and joy and peace and gentleness. And and there are, there's this whole list, right, of the gifts mm-hmm. of the spirit. And I think that looking where those gifts and those fruits of the spirit show up is one of the best ways to discern where you're called. Because I think that where our, our calling flourishes, there will be joy and there will be peace and love. It's not to say that there won't also be struggles, suffering, sin, deep challenges, but you'll see those other fruits there. And you know, the, that like the, the opposite of that is there are times where I am very much striving for something that I want and it's just not working. Like there's no peace there. There's just, frankly, it's just my own ego that is wanting something that's like striving after success or Mm. whatever that is for me. But I think the long, slow work of discernment, and it's not a quick, like you hear, I do not have four easy steps for you to find your life's calling. And you should be pretty wary of anybody who does, I think. But I think to to keep close to God in that conversation of prayer and looking at like, what does scripture say to my life? Where is that conversation happening? I think when I can look at my life and say, okay, 
where are, where am I seeing the fruits of the spirit? Like, where is their peace? Where is their joy? Where's their hope? How do I cultivate more of that? Cause that's where God's drawing me. And these other places where I'm not seeing that there might be things I need to let go, or there might be things I need to do differently. Like to be totally honest, I'm in a place right now where I'm finding the fruits of the spirit very easily in my writing. Like I am just in a really good season Mm -hmm. of writing. And that's not always the case. That can be really frustrating too, but I'm feeling it so much. And on the other hand, my parenting is so frustrating right now. Like coming out of the pandemic, I just feel like our family life is not great. There is not joy and peace and gentleness. Like that is... Now I am not called to just leave this family behind <laughs> because it's not because I'm feeling a lot of desolation there. I'm not called to kick them to the curb, but I am called to say, all right, I'm probably going to have to let go of some of the ways that I have been in this family. Like I need to do some things differently. I need to kind of recenter and, and reassess like, where are you calling me God? And how are you calling me to be in this vocation, this calling? Because just because this one part of my life is really humming along and I find the Holy spirit there and that's just flowing. It doesn't mean that I, I mean, I've made vows. Like I am committed to this family. So I need to do that differently. And then there may be other things where it's like, I'm clearly not called that. And I just have to stop trying to do something. That's not my life's work. You know, there are other things I do just need to let go. Yeah. 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 In our culture, there's such a temptation to, to like create the bucket list and the master plan. And like, this is like, this is my path and I am defining it and I'm creating it. And now I'm going to do it like a checklist, but (laughs) But I just don't believe that that's vocation or that's Christian discipleship. And I think what you're talking about is sort of like how we have to be in this constant state of attention, like paying attention to the reality and responding with, with humility and like surrender, like, oh, I guess that thing that I thought I was supposed to be about, that was just the thing I thought I was supposed to be about. That wasn't, that's not actually good for me or good for the people around me or good for my, my other commitments or like good for my relationship with God. So, so there's, there is this a lot of detachment and I think we can gain a lot of wisdom from the Eastern traditions about how we, how do we just detach and like be present to the moment and, and see the reality and remain mindful in the reality to like, oh yeah, this, this is what is, and this is the invitation now. Oh, I love that. I think I'm coming to see more and more that attention and, and what we give our attention to, what we behold is like, it's such a huge part of the spiritual life. Yeah. And I don't think I saw that as a younger person, or I don't think that was part of the tradition I was raised in, but really it is about, it's so much about attention and in a culture that is literally trying to buy our attention and our attention's commodified and it's our attention spans are shrinking. We really have to be able to, like you said, that holy detachment of stepping back and maybe even stepping out of that stream and just saying, wait a minute, like, what is this world, this culture making me into, because it can be so deforming and we can't see it when we're in it. But if we can take a step back, and I think most of our practices of prayer are about like pausing, stepping back, finding some silence, finding some different perspective to say, 
where am I in this world? How am I in relationship? Like you said, with all these different people, with God, how do I do this in a way that is faithful to what I actually believe and not just like getting sucked in by whatever is shiny or sexy or successful, you know? And that's hard. That's really hard work. It's the tension of recognizing that the ways of God don't match up with the ways of the world. And we really have to be intentional and make choices, don't we, about like, I'm picking the way of God here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that's lonely sometimes. Oh, so lonely. I think that there's, there's, there really is, there's like this secular self-help strand of vocation and calling that is all about, you know, find your bliss. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. (laughs) It's so, it's like this toxic positivity around our life's work and it's super privileged. It's so problematic, but I think it bleeds into a lot of, especially a lot of the online spaces where people are just showing the highlight reel of their life. And so then I think you look back, you like turn on your own life and you say, well, I'm not loving it and killing it every minute. Is this, is this a good way to live a life? But actually it is, it's really countercultural to step back and try to live in another way mm-hmm. that is faithful to what you believe, but it is not always popular and it is really isolating sometimes. And mm-hmm. so I think it's a real gift when you can connect with other people, even if it is in smaller, quieter corners, because there are many people who are trying to live that way. It's just not going to be what gets the world's spotlight, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It requires simplicity, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And humility. And slowing down. (laughs) (laughs) And all of that is the opposite of what the world. Yeah. You know, like buy more and hustle and grind. It just could not be, I think yeah. it could not be more counter to the way of the gospel. Mm, right. Yeah. You know, I know you've written five books. One is a scripture studies book. One is about the messiness of parenting. Is it two are about grief and loss? I'm sorry. Maybe just No, one. that's okay. Yeah. I've written one that's about grief and loss. I've written about prayer too. So there are some prayers in there that have to do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, if you're comfortable, I'd love to hear the story of, of the grief and loss that you've experienced in your life and what it's taught you about healthy relationship with God and community. And really like being your authentic self, which I think is part of what we're, we're talking about here. Yeah. So our story of, of grief and loss in 2016, I was pregnant with identical twins, which was very much a surprise on every level. And there's a rare complication that can develop with identical twins when they share placenta and one can, it's called twin to twin transfusion syndrome. One twin gets too much blood and one doesn't get enough blood because they have Mm -hmm. shared blood vessels in the placenta. And there are ways that, amazing ways that science has come up with to correct that. And one of them is having surgery in utero while you're still pregnant. And in the midst of this pregnancy, very high risk, very scary. Our twins did develop this twin to twin transfusion syndrome. And I had the surgery to try to sever these blood vessels and try to save them. 
and the surgery wasn't successful. So they had to be born very early. I was just at 24 weeks, which is really on the cusp of viability for humans. And they were really sick. So they, you know, were just not able, even with all the best that Western medicine can bring. Maggie lived one day and Abby lived two, and they each died in the NICU in our arms. And, you know, my husband and I had been through infertility before we had kids and we'd had a miscarriage as well. So I thought I had, I thought I'd front loaded my suffering um, on, on the pre-parenting sides of things. And I thought that, I thought that I knew about grief. Like I had, my, my older brother died when I was 10. So in some ways I had grown up with a deep awareness of grief and loss, but there is something about the loss of children that is, it's like, it's just another planet of loss I've learned. And it really undid and remade everything I thought I knew about God in terms of like, it just shatters all any easy notion that you had about prayer or providence or, or how a a God who is so good and loving would act in the world. And And, you know, if you're a person of faith and you try to live your life in a decent way, like shouldn't some things work out for you? And all of that just falls apart. And it falls apart for many people I've learned over the years. I I mean, it's a very unique grief that we have gone through. But I think so many people have that experience of, of the bottom just falling out underneath you, you know, and everything that you thought you knew is not true in the same way. And yet at the same time, we had a really incredible experience when our second daughter was dying in the NICU. I mean, I, even years later, it's been five years now and it's hard to put into words, not because it's emotional, but it's, it's just on another level of reality. Like we experienced this really profound joy, this total bliss while we were holding her and it was beyond it made no sense and it and it and it lasted a long time it wasn't even like a a split second it was hours and and my husband and I both experienced this and and so at the same time that my grief transformed everything I knew about God like so did this kind of mystical experience because in that moment I felt like this is God this is, I don't know, is this heaven? Is this grace? I don't know what this is. And yet I deeply know what this is. And so I came away being absolutely convinced of God. And I, (laughs) this is where I get a little emotional. Like all I want is to be able to experience that again. I don't know that I'll ever get it on this side. Maybe I could, but to live my life in a place that I could come to that kind of union with God again, like that is such a driving force because there was nothing I've ever experienced like that. So I've had these like two, two powerful experiences that were simultaneous, like of deep grief and this incredible joy. And I now, I mean, for years have been trying to figure those out. Like, what does that mean Mm-hmm. for me and my life and what am I going to do with the time I have and who is God like this giant mystery of 
who God is, who we are as humans, like how do we make sense of suffering and death? How, how do I balance this, this, this overwhelming grief with this real experience of joy I also had? So I remember saying to a friend after Maggie and Abby died that I felt like all my molecules got rearranged. And I've heard other parents say that, you know, you just feel like you have been, you are a completely different person on the other side of that. And so I think um, I have discovered a lot about God in the years since that, man, all my like easy or really even hard fought theological understandings about God, it, it kind of blasted that all apart. And I feel like I, I will be trying to learn all about that for the rest of my life. There is so much mystery wrapped up in all of it mm. and how we are changed by that. Mm. It makes me think of Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas and his whole that whole story about like he wrote the Summa Theologica for him that saying mass was an ordinary experience. And he has this encounter, this moment of ecstasy of, of bliss and encounter with Christ. And then he says, everything that he's written was straw. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look what I did. All this stuff, all this things, all the things that I thought I knew. And I told y'all it's straw. It's straw. The funny thing is, I remember when I first heard that story, I was in grad school. I just thought, isn't this a great story? And I came home and told my husband, I'm like, can you imagine, like you just said, Aquinas. And then he said, this is all just is so much straw. And the funny thing is at the end of that day, when we were holding our daughter in the NICU, he made it, he kind of made a joke about that. He was like, huh. he's like, do you remember that Aquinas? He's like, how? And we both felt sort of sheepish, like, how are we saying we got the same thing Aquinas got? Like, this feels like risky terror. What are, what's going on? But in some sense, there was there was that in that experience of like everything else fell away. And when I think about, I think back on that, I do feel like everything I do in my life, even like the best thing I could write or like the most love I could show to my children or any kind of like active Christian service I could offer to someone in need, all of that is still straw, not in that, not in the sense that it doesn't matter, but in the sense that like that joy is so much bigger than that. And it's so unearned. It's just like this, this gift of love that it just, in some ways it frees me to say like my striving is all straw. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just, there is this, there is this reality of joy and complete love that exists. And we just aren't, maybe we can't be aware of it most mm. of the time. Mm. Mm. You know, so I was asking you how grief and loss has taught you about healthy relationship with God and community and, and about being authentic to yourself. But what I'm hearing is how these experiences have awakened you to the mystery and have ultimately helped you to arrive to a greater freedom yeah. to be even more true. And I think all of that has to do with healthy relationship and community too, because I mean, that was the time in my life as well where more people were praying for us than I had ever had. Mm. You know, I had never been like the receiver of so many people's prayers. And in all the weeks 
in that pregnancy when things were going bad bad and it was not good. Like, and, and people, more and more people were praying for us and asking others to pray. And, and I could feel that too. I could feel other people's prayers, literally holding us up. Like it was a physical force. And I've, I've never experienced anything like that. And it taught me, even though that like the experience of, of loss from death is so, um, there's such emptiness and absence in it there. It's so lonely at the same time, I think what the gift of faith and being part of a community of believers gave me was the love and compassion and support of all these people who were around us. And so I think to be authentic in the world means to offer that to others and also to receive it. All I could do then was receive it. And so now on the other side of it, I can offer that to others. And I feel like that's the call in my writing and my speaking and my ministry now so much of it there there's always going to be kind of the strand of it that is for grieving people and grieving parents because mm-hmm. that's part of who I am now and so how can I offer just this simple you know act of love and prayer and compassion to people who are grieving who are so often lost and feel unseen so I think there's part of that that there's a call from this loss and grief for me to be in a different way with other people and with God. Cause I mean, that's just all, that's just God's people is all of this, you know, everyone gathered together there. Yeah. Oh, I think what you're naming, which, which I've experienced too, is sort of like how there's this paradox that's mind blowing that feels like holy ground. You know, it is holy ground. The, this when like when we're having those both and experiences like this is really lonely yet I feel totally lifted up. That's holy ground there. Yeah. 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 And and then in that holy ground we're given a gift. And we receive that gift so that we can then share that gift with others. And and usually the gift is like the depth of insight or the wisdom or this knowledge that this experience that and and the way we then give it to others requires a vulnerability and really stepping into out of our comfort zones and like into this place of like this is I don't maybe want to be public about all this but I can see that that's part of the call here like if I'm not public about this story that I'm not offering this gift back. God doesn't want, didn't give me this gift and this experience for me to like cling to. And it's not all about me. It's for the greater good. Like, how does this work for you and and your experience in your life? Telling your story and like offering this gift and your, you know, the experiences that you have responding to that call. It's funny. I don't think, I mean, if I hadn't been, a writer who was already, I mean, blogging about things. And I had this practice already of sharing some parts of my life with, well, perfect strangers on the internet um, in ways that I had found could be life-giving for me and for them. I'm definitely not a person that just puts it all out there, just bleeds all over the place. I don't think that's healthy, but I had found that There could be ways, you know, when I had written about some of our experience with infertility, 
or with, with miscarriage, I had so many people say, thank you for writing that. I feel so alone in this and your words helped me to see I'm not alone. And you gave me some, some hope in that. Mm. And that felt, that felt like really holy ground. And I think, I think that there is a real call in vulnerability for me that I see it's in the sharing of my story that lets other people grapple with their own story. So I think it has to be done in ways that are healthy and safe. And whenever people ask me like, how do you do this? I say, it's sort of like the tip of the iceberg. Like anything I share online, I've written a whole lot about it that's messy or angry or not for anybody's eyes, but mine and God's. And none of that is going to get on the internet. (laughs) That's why journals are very important. But as I work through that writing on my own, sometimes there are pieces that I say I could offer that. And it, and it is vulnerable to offer Mm -hmm. that, but I have seen that, that vulnerability is where true community happens. And I think even as Catholics, there's something really sacramental about that. Like our practice of gathering is in community is around the Eucharist and there's suffering and death in that offering. Like there's this body and blood that are broken and given. And yet there's this deep love and this deep communion, this unity that comes out of that. And we can bring our own brokenness to that and find some sense of hope and healing in that. And so I think there can be ways that that vulnerability can actually like paradoxically be a source of strength and a source of gathering as a community. And like I said, there's there's performative vulnerability on the internet, which is gross and that shouldn't be done. And lots of people need therapy. I'm a big proponent of like mm-hmm. therapy and spiritual direction are life-giving. And mm-hmm. I could not be in the place where I can write about any of this if I didn't have both of those in my life. But I think that sometimes it is in telling the hard stories, the stories that maybe we have not heard shared from others that can honestly, I think sometimes it can save people's lives. I think it can, it can make people feel seen in very dark places and it's not up to us to save them, but I think it can be this offering that we give sometimes to each other to, it's just compassion. It's suffering with each other to say, I see you, you aren't alone in this and I'm going to be here for you. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. (laughs) You've given me a lot to pray and think about (laughs) as I continue to discern my own call and like, what things do I need to be public about or not? And and it's hard. It's It's a a big discernment, you know, and yeah, I will tell you though, that it's, it's sometimes those posts or those pieces that I feel I almost don't share them. I almost don't publish them. Cause I think, Oh, just stop it. Elle. Stop being vulnerable on the internet. Stop it. <laughs> what are you mm. doing? And, um, and when I pray and I, and I feel a little nudge, like, no, maybe try it. Maybe this is what somebody needs to share today. Those are always the words that resonate with people. It's never the ones that I craft beautifully. And I think, well, this is wise and true. And I will share it. People are like, eh, that's yeah. nice. That's nice. Thanks. It's these other ones that I almost never shared. And people are like, this is like, this is the struggle of my life. Thank you for naming this. Nobody's ever said this to me. And I think, all right, God, I don't know what you're up to, but (laughs) 
clearly my own agenda is not often the way to go. <laughs> right. It's not about our own agenda or even our own ideas, right? Totally not. Totally. Yeah, about bowing to the mystery. Wow. <laughs> yes. So, so Laura, what's discipleship for you? Oh, this this ties right into all of the calling ideas and theology. I think that have become so central to me because sometimes in our work we would talk about sort of two different kinds of calling. There was this big general calling that share. And that's discipleship that, I mean, to be a disciple is to follow a teacher, right? To be a student of a, of a teacher is literally what that word meant. And so those of us who are trying to follow in this way of Jesus and to understand what does this teacher mean for our life? Like, what's it mean to follow this gospel way? That's this, this, there's solidarity in that because that's the calling that we're all trying to work out and follow in our different lives. And then the second sense of calling are these particular callings, you know, whether it's to religious life for you, to marriage for me, to parenting or professional work or caregiving, whatever people are doing in the world, like the big general calling of discipleship can be lived out through these particular callings we have. So I think discipleship can be this, this big umbrella, this big tent of the church that we can be in and say, we're hanging in here together. We're trying to do this. It's hard. It's uh, There's a lot of squabbling under that tent about what it looks like to follow Jesus. But I think it's, it's this real, it's the big orientation of my life to say, I'm trying to be a follower of Jesus and, and all these other particular callings, some of them rise up and some of them end and some of them last our whole lives, but they even evolve within those callings. All of that is, is within this big calling of discipleship that we share. So yeah, I think within all of this for me with writing and family life and, and grief and ministry, all of that I see is, is just, those are the kind of the particular ways that, that God invites me to live out that calling to follow Jesus, to follow mm. God. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. So we're in the big tent and there's squabbles and <laughs> we're constantly trying to respond to these calls that come and go. <laughs> What's messy about all this for you? Nearly everything <laughs> to my deep frustration, <laughs> nearly everything. I, you know, I started thinking about God in the messiness when I was a new parent. There is so much just bodily mess in these early years of new parenthood that you're like, this is a lot of hard work. Some of it's kind of gross. What is this about? <laughs> I did not think adulthood was necessarily going to look like this. But that kind of metaphor or that lens through which I was seeing my life and seeing, no, there's there's really grace-filled moments or sacramental moments in that mess and hard work. Actually, I've come to see that expand to to just this bigger awareness of, I mean, grief is really messy. Suffering is hugely messy. Most of our human existence probably would fall under that category of chaos and, and mess. We want to control it. I deeply would like to control so much of my life. I never thought I was a control freak until like I became a parent and then people I love died. And actually I would like to control all of that very much. Thank you. Mm. But the humility is to say things are messy here. Things are 
are difficult and contradictory. And I, there's a real call in humility to say, I cannot control much, most of what I would like to control. I control my own response to things if I try sometimes, but most of life, I'm going to just have to figure out how to deal with that when I can't control, how to deal with the mess. And I think that this idea of, of finding grace within the mess, I think that is the call of the Christian life. I mean, if you look at Genesis, the very first words of, of scripture are God creating out of chaos. I find so much hope in that for the chaos of my own life whether it's just the daily chaos of life with lots of kids or like the chaos of writing and creative work or the total chaos of saying, I had this plan for my life and it was going to be brighter and safer and less painful than what I got. That's deep chaos. And yet like the spirit is hovering right above that. And I think that's always happening. If God is, is a creator and a creative spirit, it's happening all the time. And so to trust that even in the mess of life, God is always hovering right above that chaos and there will be creation that comes out of that. That I think is this cycle of, of creation out of chaos of, I mean, that's resurrection. It's death, it's life coming out of death. And, and so I think reminding ourselves that that is the way <laughs> things do work counter to our desire to control them. That's life-giving and that's creative and that has power for all of us and hope for all of us. Amen. Amen. By God's designs. Yeah. <laughs> By God's designs, discipleship is meant to be messy. Yeah. Man, I wish it were not. I wish it were just a smooth, like getting on the moving walkway at the airport and just sliding <laughs> through life. Wouldn't that be nice? No, it is. It's the, it's like the pilgrimage metaphor. It's you out there sweating in the sun and it's hot. Your feet hurt. It's, it's yeah. like, that's a real journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually I would like to say thanks be to God because there's the freedom, right? So we don't yeah. have to like keep these tidy containers or like be rigid about something. And we instead get to just be authentic with God in it all and, and like, let God show us each moment, like, Oh, oh okay. This is the thing. Oh, I think what you said, that word about freedom, that's the key for me. That word keeps showing up for me in my own prayer life lately. Like when you, when you choose this countercultural way of life, there is actually deep freedom in it. There's so much freedom right now for me to say a lot of things the world thinks is crazy. Like having a bunch of kids or doing creative work that is not, you know, a really like cushy job. There's actually phenomenal freedom in that. We're all, I think that discipleship does bring us this great freedom to say, I don't need to worry about actually most of what the world is pushing me to worry about. I, I can do this thing in another way. Mm. And I think there's real freedom in that. Oh, yeah. Oh, exciting. <laughs> That's good. Oh, so Laura, how can our listeners follow your work and, and explore more of the, the mess and, and the goodness and the mystery with you? Yeah. So I write a lot on Instagram these days. Uh, and my, uh, handle there is this messy grace, <laughs> See? kind of fitting this messy grace. And then I write on 
Facebook as well. You can find me at Laura Kelly Finucci and my website is laurakellyfinucci.com. So I still have a lot of writing up there on my Mothering Spirit blog, which is how this whole thing got started. Mm-hmm. And I write a, a Substack newsletter that's called The Holy Labor. And I try to think a lot about creativity and calling and work and family, all of that. A lot of what we've been talking about today at yeah. The Holy Labor. So yeah, I would love to connect with folks. So thank you. Oh, blessings on all your work. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute delight. This was great. invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Whereas my conversation with Laura explored the fruits of the Spirit as a way to notice where the Holy Spirit is working in your life, I'm going to read for you a passage from the Bible. A reading from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. In contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. No, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also follow the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envious of one another. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good. Peace.